Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 8th, 2019. We're up to episode 2486 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and we are on our regular scheduled show for a Thursday, Listener Call Show. This is where you pick your phone up and you dial a number. The number you dial is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. You call the Think Line, because we do encourage you to think around here. You leave me your question or your comment, and you have a pretty good shot sooner or later of getting on the air if you follow the rules. What are the rules? Call from a quiet place, not the back of a motorcycle or a truck with all the windows down doing 80 miles an hour on the highway. Know what you're going to say before you call so you can make your point or ask your question in a bottom line, upfront manner. That means about one sentence, two maximum, then give me your details. Do that, your call will go well, and you will probably get on the air, because when I screen your call, I'll go, this is what this person's asking. And if I don't have an answer, I will be able to find you one or find someone that can get you one, and that'll make a great show material. Here's what we have from the audience today and calls to the think line. Um, guy called in last week, and I thought he was asking about a basically a version of 529 plans. Um, Ursa is what I thought he said. He actually said ESOP, which is E-S-O-P, which is an employer stop option uh, plan versus IRAs for retirement. So we'll take another swing at that one. Uh, choosing a fuel option for a whole house generator. Can the wrong feed make for smelly eggs in your laying flock? And I'll let the person calling in tell you what these eggs smell like. And they don't smell like it until they cook them. And I don't effing know on this one. I'm going to be crowdsourcing an answer here. Uh, why you need what's called the over-under, or under-over, you can say it either way you want to, cable and hose wrapping method in your life. I'll try to explain it, but basically we'll have a YouTube video you can look at. But I'll tell you why I think it should be a life skill. Uh, the elimination of iguanas in southern Florida is an invasive species. I'll tell you what's going on down there with that and how it might be an opportunity for some enterprising individuals. Uh, making a spreadsheet of expensive items, serial numbers for theft and insurance uh, pro uh, protection. And choosing a hunting round for medium game with the 357 Magnum. And we'll finish up with fishing kayaks for small to medium ponds. Pretty varied assortment. You know, somebody recently on Facebook said to me, I really like your show, but I think it's turned into the gardening podcast. My response is, uh, I don't think we even do as much on gardening as we did in the past, especially in the beginning, but we do do a lot on gardening. But here's how the show breaks down, guys. I want you to think about this for a minute. Monday morning shows are all about you guys sending me emails, so you control the content. Um, Wednesday shows are interview shows, so if you want to talk about something and you think you'd make a good guest, put in a guest form and get on the air. Thursday shows are all calls to me asking me questions, and Friday calls are all questions sent in for the expert counsel. That means in four out of the five shows of the week, the audience has a tremendous amount of control, and three out of the five have almost total control of what gets on the air. So if you don't like the topics that are somewhat dominant, get on the phone, get on the email, get a, an email in for the expert counsel, or if you know your stuff, get an application in to be a guest, and let's talk about the things you want to hear about, because that's what this show is. I've tried to put this show as much as I can with still being me and still running the show, right? 
as much as I can in the hands of the audience over the years so that I'm giving you what you ask for. I do think, though, sometimes when people say it's changed, I, I don't know what you're talking about because when I go back through the years and look, I think the subject matter has remained largely the same. I think the one thing that got pared down a lot was politics because, well, uh, as much as I was anti-political in the beginning, I'm just becoming more so the older I get in life. And we'll talk about that with um, our quote of the week here in just a minute. Before we do, though, if you do love this show and you want us to always be here to provide all the information and entertainment we do, consider becoming a member of the MSB or Members Support Brigade. The only thing you have to do to be an MSB member is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and fill out a form. Well, you also have to give me some money. I mean, how am I going to pay the bills if I don't charge for them on a cell? Um, here's the good news. It's cheap. 50 bucks a year, that's 18.3 cents an episode. But it's even better because it's really free. And the way I mean that it's free is if you're in our space, you're self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, liberty-oriented individual, homesteading, things like that, it, it, it's almost impossible that of the 80-plus vendors we have as discount vendors in the MSB, you're not buying stuff they sell. So if you use the discount vendors and you buy the stuff they sell at a discount, everything from seeds to plants and trees to you name it, all that good stuff, um, then you'll get more money back than you put in. And that's why, I mean, it's free or actually profitable. So consider being a member today if you're not one already. It really is the case that without the membership program, TSP wouldn't be a thing. There's a reason this show is one of the longest-running podcasts on the Internet today, and I believe in my space self-sufficiency, self-reliance, freedom, independence, liberty, homesteading, permaculture, etc. We're probably the longest-running podcast. There's some people that got us beat in some uh, more broad, generic categories, but in, in a, a niche podcast, uh, I don't think there's anybody else out there coming up on episode 2500 that's been doing the show for 11 years. And the reason I can do that is because we are supported by the audience uh, through selling a value-for-value value exchange product in the MSB. Without that, I couldn't be here. I couldn't dedicate my life to this. I'd have to go do something else. And I would, but I don't want to. This is what I want to do, and you guys supporting me and uh, getting your money back through a value-for-value exchange is how we do that. With that, let's talk about that quote of the week I kind of gave a little aside to. Um, this is from Bill Mollison, founder of Permaculture, co-founder of Permaculture, along with David Holgram. And it is one of my favorite quotes because it really puts things in perspective. And I think it actually is a little bit of a slap in the face to at least some members of uh, what you would call the liberty community, right, or the libertarian community or the anarcho community or the freedom caucus or whatever you want to call it, but people that fancy themselves as fighting the system. And I would say people that fan fancy themselves as fighting the system on both the left and the right and in some ways maybe even a little more smack to the left side than the right side. But here's what Bill had to say. The greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on a small scale. In our own gardens, if only 10% of us do this, there's enough for everyone. This is the part that gives the smackdown, though, okay? Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter, Bill Mollison. The futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce no words, who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. Um, I want to kind of make a visual for you in this. Let's say that you were living in a building, 
And that building was kind of like a prison. It was an evil building, but it provided you shelter and food. And uh, the people that at least enforced the rules so the other prisoners didn't steal for you were inside that building, etc. But you realized finally, even though you grew up in this building as a prisoner, that you really were a prisoner, that all the lies that said you were free were indeed lies, and that the building itself was evil. So the building had to go. And you decided the way to get rid of that building was to burn it down. Well, ethically, of course, we should get all the innocent people that at least want to go out of the building, shouldn't we? Let's even put that aside, though, and talk about this strictly in the context of this quote from a self-preservation method. If you were going to burn that building down, don't you think it would be a good idea to get out of it first? And how stupid would you be if you didn't? You just stood there and let the damn thing on fire while you were standing there. Um, if you ended up in that position, there's a high probability that you would put the fire out yourself. You'd never really commit to burning the building down because you'd realize without that building, you know, even if you got out, if you didn't make other, other uh, arrangements for yourself, you'd have no place to stay, no food to eat, no one to protect you. And you wouldn't be able to protect yourself because you grew up without knowing how. So if you wanted to burn that building down, the first thing you'd want to do is get out of it. And the second thing you'd want to do is build your own building. And only after you did that, and only after you encouraged as many people to get out as possible, would it make any sense at all to burn the building down. But if you did that, you might realize, wait a minute, if I can leave that building, I'm not really as trapped in there as I thought I was, and neither are all those other people. And I'll never convince them all to come out, so setting that building on fire is a big mistake. Maybe I need to sit out here and create beauty and joy in my life and keep yelling at those people in the building. Come out here and join me. But you can't ever fight that situation until you come up with a way to feed and clothe yourself and shelter yourself. That's what Bill was trying to tell us in that quote. I think it's a great quote of the week, and it's a good one on a Thursday afternoon. With that, let's go ahead and get into it today. Uh, let's take this first call on... Uh, One I got wrong, but because I didn't understand what the guy was asking me last week. And, guys, if this ever happens, guys, gals, both, if this ever happens, what about the Zs? The Zs don't get answers from me, right? You're the guy or a gal. Call you whatever you want as long as you're not completely insane. Um, if I ever answer a question for you and I didn't understand you properly, clarify it. I will give calls like this one priority or emails like that are similar to this priority. If I, if I answered it wrong, uh, I'll straighten it away. So let's go ahead and take this one now. Hi, Jack. This is Jared from North Dakota calling again. I think you misunderstood my question from a couple of days ago, and that's probably my fault. But I was asking about the difference between ESOP, which is a employer stock ex employer stock option plan, I believe, The difference between that and IRA. If you could clarify that, great. Thank you. So I, I am aware of the fact that I use the answer, it depends so much that it's become a community joke that people will often, when somebody asks a question, say it depends, uh, and everybody knows they're mimicking me, and people get a good laugh out of it. And it's funny because it's true. Well, it's really true here. It's really true here. So an employee stop, stock option plan, um, I want to be clear, first of all, that this in general is different than when you hear somebody say, I got stock options. 
uh, with some new job or something like that. That's generally some sort of an incentive to join a company. And I was part of a company where both of them were part of, of the way things work there as an employee for a while. Unfortunately, it was a good company, too. They got bought out by a competitor that sucked ass. Um, did well on the, on the stock options, but not well overall. I didn't really like working for the new ownership. But um, So a, a stock option uh, program that we're talking about, when we, most people think of that, is so I go to work for company XYZ. They say, hey, uh, we'll give you 10,000 stock options. And the way those will work is they'll say the strike price on the options is three bucks, let's say. And uh, uh, there'll be a vesting period how long before those options all become mine and executable. And at some point, let's say I leave the company, I could even maybe, depends on how it's structured, but, you know, take those options and execute them. And if the, co the cost of the stock is currently 10 bucks, I basically just make $7 a share. Uh, there's other ways that happens. The big money in that is when exactly what I said happened. Another company buys your company out. And then you get the strike price and the difference. And sometimes, uh, because it doesn't cost them anything up front, companies will offer an awful lot of money that way. And when you get into that, you take as much as you can get because it generally doesn't cost you anything. What he's asking about, an ESOP, and I just didn't understand it right in the last call, is where there's a formal program that's generally available to everybody. There usually still is some sort of a vesting period. If your employer is contributing in any way, shape, or form, like let's say they're doing a 25% uh, match for every share you buy, they give you a quarter of another share, that'll often have a vesting period. Sometimes there's none of that, though, and you're just buying stock. And you, when you leave, there's various ways that you can take it with you. Some you might have to actually sell it. Some uh, you could take it into a brokerage account. Some could even be sheltered within a tax-deferred account. Some can't. So I'm saying it's all over the place. And there's a lot of different ways they work. The one I had was pretty good. It allowed me to simply buy stock at a discount. Now, exactly what the back-end mechanism that created this was, I don't know. But it was twice a year we could do it. We could buy up to a certain percentage of our salary. Um, and we could buy, let's say, if the stock was trading uh, for $10 a share, we could buy it for $7.50 a share. So we were making 25% immediately. Um, and while there was some level of a holding requirement, in the end, you could, if you left the company, you could sell it all. So you could absolutely have known you were leaving, bought the stock at a discount, made 25% on it the next week when you left. Some places, you don't even have to hold it. It all depends on how they're doing this, right? Um, some instances are effectively the employees loaning money to the employer. So the employees will put in a certain amount of money and buy stock, sometimes at a discount, sometimes at some sort of an incentive, and the company won't actually put stock in the, the, the kitty, so to say. They'll put a promise of stock in the future, or if the company's not publicly traded, they may actually put stock in there that's not executable you can't do anything with right now. And so it's a promise to pay in the future at which time the company, let's say an employee leaves, uh, retires and says, I want my money. And then they convert that stock because a lot of these are closely held, not publicly traded companies, meaning they're not, there's no place to just go sell the stock like you can on an exchange. Some of them are public companies. The one I worked for was. So they're all over the map. So this is my general view of any employee-managed uh, savings program um, when compared to an IRA. What do you get? 
what do you get? If all I get is the ability to put my money in it, then I'm going to, unless I'm maxed out due to income requirements, et cetera, and I want to save more money uh, in some way, then I'm going to default to the IRA, a Roth as always, because I have more options there. And whenever I get into company stock, I'm in a double risk. If the company goes bankrupt, I lose my stock and I lose my job at the same time. So I'm looking for the company to be giving me something. Now, an immediate 25% return, uh, that's got my attention. I'll probably participate in that at some level. If it's a 50% return, well, I'm really interested. And, you know, some companies out there still have some programs that are dollar for dollar, meaning uh, if you contribute $5,000 this year or $500 or wherever it is, you get twice that amount in stock or in some other form of investment uh, in a different program. Now I'm really interested. So, And then is the program itself a tax deferment or a tax deduction uh, or a tax shelter? I mean, what, what does it mean? Does it mean that uh, if I put 5000 bucks in this this year that it comes off my income, but I pay tax on it at retirement? Or is it that I pay the tax now and it's some sort of a Roth vehicle, this is housed and I never pay tax on it? You have to look at the totality of the individual program. Um, when you ask me about a 401K, I can tell you that the majority of 401ks are very, very similar. There's, you know, five to 15 funds, and they work this way. And and it's employee stock, employer stock option program has so many variables that you really have to judge them individually. They're not as as simple to understand. Maybe this was one to kick over to Pugliano, but um, he's pretty full of, of questions right now. So uh, I'll give that answer, and if John wants to add to it, I'll give him the opportunity. With that, let's take another one. This one on generators. Hi, Jack. This is Paula in Pennsylvania. My question is, what are your opinions of a whole house generator? And part two is how would you fuel that generator or any generator, propane, diesel, or gasoline? Details. Our house burned down in April, so we're rebuilding from scratch so we can set things up the way we want to within the budget limits of the insurance claim. And I'm thinking we might be better off going with a whole house generator versus the two generators we had before and switching to a different fuel source from gasoline. Would like your opinion. Thank you. Bye. So we're right back into the world of It Depends. Um, now, you didn't give the fuel option that I would most love to recommend for you, probably because you don't have it, and that's natural gas. If you are on a natural gas grid, one of the things you should understand is one of the last utilities that would ever stop working is natural gas. You could have the phones down, the electric down, and the place flooded, and natural gas is probably still going to work for 99% of people. And it's pretty much limitless. You might get a big bill for it that, that particular month that you had a big outage, but it's there. So if you had the option of a standby whole house generator, with natural gas, and you had the budget for it, I would recommend that to anybody. But you don't sound like you do. So let's talk about your other options. When you talk whole house generator, um, 
that re unless we're talking standby where it starts up by itself, it's just sitting there, starts up by itself, that really isn't a thing other than how big it is. Because really what we're talking about is a wiring arrangement that allows that generator to power the house without killing somebody trying to fix the electricity down the road. And that can be done um, in, 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 with manual or automatic bypass switches that make sure that no power is backfed down the grid. That has to be done by professionals. We'll leave it out of this discussion other than acknowledge that it's there. Now, here's what I have at my place. I have a, um, a hookup with a manual bypass. If I plug a generator into it and fire it up, basically nothing will turn on, nothing will happen until I throw a bypass switch, and that is, again, to protect linemen so I don't electrocute a lineman down the road trying to turn my power back on. Uh, but it is not really whole house. It is wired into the home wiring, and because I have a big house and because it's really it really takes a lot of energy to think, run things like a... Um, Uh, central air conditioning system, it doesn't run everything. It runs enough things that you're happy and convenient. You can put fans on. Uh, you can plug some stuff into the wall. You can throw a window unit in, things like that. So I can uh, drag out a generator probably not much different than you have. It's a gas-powered Troy bill, and I can fire that up out of my porch and hook it up with a cable, a special cable, to that switch, flip the bypass, and boom, there's power to the house. So that's something that you want to wire into your home since you have the opportunity to do that, regardless of what you do with generator. You want that done by a qualified electrician, period, the end, infinity, on fuel types. So here's how I look at it when it comes to gas versus diesel. Do you own a diesel vehicle? If you own a diesel vehicle, I am really intrigued by the idea of a diesel generator and a great big diesel storage tank where I can take, with gravity, diesel fuel out of that tank into my vehicle and into my generator both. Because I have a reason to do that, and diesel stores a lot longer than gasoline, and I'm going to be able to rotate my diesel anyway because I have a diesel vehicle. So if nothing else, every once in a while I can dump 20 gallons of Uh, diesel fuel out of that storage tank into my truck, and I can dump 20 gallons and four or five gallon cans back into my big storage tank, and I can get some fuel rotation going on there. And I feel pretty good about that. If you do not have a diesel vehicle, you're going to spend a lot more money for a diesel generator, and you are going to have a lot more cost of upkeep of that generator if something goes wrong with it. And you don't really have a use for the fuel, and you probably won't use the generator that much, and it makes you see what I'm saying. It makes it a little bit more difficult there. So between gas and diesel, I'm going to, for most people, side with gasoline. Now, if you have a farm and you run multiple diesel tractors and you have diesel in storage, you're a fool to get a gas generator. Really. I mean, so you see how I'm saying it depends. Now let's go gas versus propane. The limitation with propane is the size of the tank that you can install, and you generally um, have to get a tank anything bigger than 120 gallons Uh, at least 10 feet away from the house, and I believe in most places that number increases as does the size of the tank. A 300-gallon propane tank running a whole house generator with somebody that wants to turn the TV on, turn the air conditioner on, cook on an electric range and stuff like that, it can be done. It's a fairly large generator. It's fairly expensive, but a 300-gallon propane tank will not even run that household for a week that way. So you see what I'm saying about the unlimited nature of natural gas versus propane. And the other side of it is, 
if we're running propane generator off a propane tank and propane tank goes empty, we need to call somebody to bring a great big truck with a giant pump and pump more propane into our tank to refill it. So unless we're looking at something like a 500-gallon pig or bigger, for most people in most situations, I'm going to kind of side with the gasoline generator. We can store gas, and we can go get more gas. And in some situations, it's really hard to get gasoline. I think everybody should have at least 60 gallons in storage anyway. But in most instances, with just general power outages, even if the gasoline store at the corner's out of gas, the one five to ten miles away is not. So we can always get more gas, and we can always rotate it through our vehicles. So it really depends on the type of generator that you're talking about actually getting, what your budget for that generator is, which fuel options, and what the other things you have at your home are. I would say that this is one of those situations where it does make sense to maybe talk to a salesman or two that specializes in whole house generators, get budgetary numbers, do not sign a contract with them, do not buy from them on the first call, and do talk to at least two people, and then compare the do-it-yourself options. Because there's going to be two steps in this. One is going to be the wiring for the generator itself, and the second is going to be the generator. Here's the thing with your propane generators. Um, they will, a lot like the champions and stuff like that, one of the beautiful things with them is they will actually start themselves up, run a systems check, and run for a little while every so often on a timer. What this means is that you know it's going to work when it's supposed to work. And the other thing is that they can be set up to automatically start when the power goes out. So the lights go out, and a little bit later, everything comes on. It is the best thing functionally. So if you think that you can have enough propane stored to get through a week or more, and it'll give you mostly what you want, and in the budget you have, you can afford the generator, the wiring, um, and usually the propane pig, a lot of times the propane companies will give you even really big ones, and of course you've got to fill it right away to get them to do that. Um, but you know, if you have place, and then you got trenching, and you got you know copper pipe or whatever to connect that, so if the total budget fits and you can have enough propane to make it work, I would go propane. If that doesn't work for you, I would go gasoline, unless you own diesel vehicles, in which case I would really consider diesel. So it's it's you see what I'm saying? Like it's not a hard concrete answer. Everybody's different. I would say Stephen Harris and I have torn this uh, subject apart on generators, and there's some really great episodes I'll look up for you and put in the show notes that Steve and I did shows on generators. God, I'm guessing like eight years ago. Let's take another one. This one on smelly eggs. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont. Um, I've got some smelly chicken eggs. They don't seem to smell when I crack them, but uh, once they're cooked, they kind of smell like feces. Um, not sure what the issue is. I was thinking on changing their uh, their diet, um, feed them layer pellets, uh, organic. Uh, other than that, they do have access to compost. Uh, don't know if it's something... We're composting. We're not putting any uh, fats or anything or any uh, animal byproducts in there. Um, I was wondering if you can help us out. Thanks. So I, I do have a philosophy that if something's wrong and it's it's something that there's multiple things that you're doing uh, to produce or, or cause to happen, change something and see what happens. 
And the easiest thing here would be to change the critter's diet. Um, this is not a problem I'm aware of. I have never even heard of this. Uh, I'd ask you what they taste like, but it'd be very hard for me to taste anything if it smelled like shit, which is what you just said. You got chicken eggs, you crack them open, they don't smell bad, and you cook them, and you have the wafting odor of poop. Um, anybody that's ever dealt with that and has come up with a solution for it, let me know. As far as chickens having access to compost, this shouldn't be a problem. This is something that's done all over the place in many different ways, and uh, I've never heard, again, it's a problem I've never heard of. It It could be that there is something in the feed that you're using, the layer pellets or layer crumbles you're using, that with your particular birds, uh, it's causing this, or it's also possible, because you'd think if that was the case, it would be a very widespread problem, and if you have food that makes chicken eggs smell like poop, you got to change your formula pretty quick. The market will correct that. I mean, this does not require a Jedi mind trick for you to know that these are not the eggs you're looking for. So my instinct would be, if it is the feed, it could be that there is a particular plant or food source available on your property that's combining with something in this food that's causing that. So if you can find a food that's significantly different, not just a different brand, that might be. For instance, I use a feed that gets the majority of its protein from peanut meal versus the soy that most feeds get. So something that's a significant change. Be prepared for them maybe, not definitely, but maybe to not want to eat it. Uh, they'll eat it when they get hungry, but when I've changed feeds for uh, birds at times, I've seen them refuse to eat. So that's always a possibility. And observe them. See where they're going. What are they doing? Is there some place they're spending an undue amount of time? Maybe there's something they're getting from there. I don't know. And then also, if this doesn't just go away, see if there's any seasonality to it. If it's something that as soon as the cold weather hits in a month from now, for where you're at, a month, month and a half, you'll be into the, the you know beautiful part of fall, and the temperatures are going to drop 15, 20 degrees on average or more, um, and all of a sudden it goes away, then you know it's an environmental factor. Uh, again, anybody that's had this problem, let me know in the comments or send me an email or something, and let's see if we can help Jesse out. Sorry, can't be more help. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is David from Texas. I was... Uh Realizing recently a lot of people don't know how to do the over-under wrapping method for hoses, cables, extension cords, you name it. Um, helps extend the life of it, makes it easier to get off. Maybe you can go into a little bit more in-depth and try to explain it over the air, but I think the best way is to look it up probably on YouTube. That's about it, man. Thanks for all you do. So I found uh, like the most brief and get-to-the-damn-point about this video on YouTube that I could for you guys and put in the show notes. I do think this should be a modern life skill. Uh, anybody that's like an audio-video guy that's dealing with cables all the time knows how to do this. I'll admit I only learned how to do this, oh, I guess, just a little bit before I started the show, so like 12, 13 years ago. It's a way of winding hoses, cables, extension cords, etc., and it is exactly what it sounds like, but it's very difficult to uh, explain on air uh, in an audio. You think If you think of the way that most people wrap an extension cord, for instance, we kind of bring it around and we just wrap it and kind of keep it in the best orderly fashion we can. And we'll put a bit of a twist in it as we do that to hold that circle. And over time, that twist, as much as we strive to keep it from becoming excessive, does become excessive. And if one bit gets out of place on the unroll, all of a sudden that cable goes to shit and we're untangling it and we're pissed off. 
And, and this is the way I would bet you 90% of people who are you know somewhat handy, somewhat organized, do put their extension cords away, pride themselves on uh, doing it right at all. Probably most people do it the first way, I explain, not this over-under method, where you kind of come around the way of the first way, you come back around and underneath it, and then do it again, and they counter each other. Each one changes over. And if you've prided yourselves on making nice circles, not that this isn't circular, but you know, making your nice circles and your continuous roll, um, it's very, especially with an extension cord or a hose, it's very counterintuitive. When you see somebody do it, you're like, that, 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 that can't be right. But what happens is the under part kind of lifts the over part off and everything stays nice. And if you roll a hose up this way, um, you can just grab the end of the hose and walk. And it doesn't kink or do anything unless it's a really, really shitty hose. Because uh, there's hoses that are so crappy, it doesn't matter. They're going to have problems anyway. Same with extension cable. I mean, with this method, unless you pull it the, the end through the loop and screw it up, you can plug an extension cord and lay it on the ground, grab the end, and walk away. And it'll just peel off beautifully. Um, there's also another method. Maybe I'll try to find a video for it if I can. But with extension cords, where you can basically braid an extension cord, I actually really like that method as well. But it is not as good for the life of the cord as as this is, but it is really convenient. Um, but this is something everybody should learn how to do. Now, I'll be honest, most of the time with my garden hoses, it's not what I do with a hose. What I do with a hose is very much a typical wrap, except it's very big. You're thinking like 10-foot diameter circles. I just kind of grab the hose and walk and drop and walk and drop. And when the circle's that big, you don't get memory in the hose. And when it comes to hoses, what I wanted to throw in on this quick segment is it is so important how you treat a hose when you first get it. A manufacturer wants that hose to take up as little space as possible for when it ships, sits in a store, sits in a warehouse, etc. They do not put the best needs of the hose and the person that will eventually own the hose in mind when they do this. They just roll it up. Yeah, they keep everything in line and all, but they roll it up, and the center of that roll is very tight, and it develops an awful lot of memory. And almost inevitably, the last about six, eight inches of that hose is going to be kind of bent around the inside of that hole and have a big, nasty kink in it, even if it's a good quality hose. So when I get a new hose, this is my hose break-in procedure. I hook it up to the nozzle, and I unroll it hand over hand with the back, basically the, the wrong way to do it. Uh, if you were rolling out um, a cable out of a box or off a spool, so you're coming off the bottom. And that's just because it's easier to put your hands in. So you put your hands inside the hole, and you kind of walk it with your hand. You walk that hose straight out. You want to find a nozzle you can hook it up to you where you can make that hose as straight as possible and run that hose out as straight as possible and put a nozzle on the end of it, so like a spray nozzle, closed. Turn the water on open it up and spray some water through the hose and then close the nozzle so the hose is under pressure and laying straight in the sun. Go shut the water pressure off so it's just the pressure that's retained by the hose keeping it inflative and taut. If it's leaking, you might have to put a little pressure on it to keep it and you'll have a little mud puddle at the end of this exercise. Let it sit there for at least a day like that in the sun. Two is better. 
what this is going to do is keep the, the hose nice and straight and unrolled, and it's going to lose the memory of being in that tight, wound thing. That doesn't have a brain. It's not that kind of memory. It's the same kind of memory that a spring has. It's good when a spring has memory. But when we have something that we really want to be in a much larger circular fashion, has memory of being in a really tight bound form for a portion of it, it's a real nightmare. So if you take and learn that hose breaking procedure and this under-over method uh, for your cables and for your, your cords and for your hoses, your life will be better. And it's one of those things that, you know, dads used to teach their sons and it just doesn't happen anymore. So... Uh, it's something that the other side of it is there's always somebody on YouTube to show you how to do it. Thanks for that call. Uh, that's something I would have never even thought about discussing. But if I ever do a, a life skills, you know, 20 life skills to add to your life or something again, uh, I think this will make the list uh, compared to some of the other ones we've done. Let's, uh, let's take another one. This one on, of all things, iguanas. Hi, Jack, you jerk. Oh, I just had a quick question for you. Uh, Florida has just uh, decided to uh, pressure homeowners to um, eradicate iguanas as they're a invasive species, as you quite well know. Just wanted to ask you about that. How would you recommend a, a homeowner best to go about that? Take it upon themselves, as Florida's actually saying, hire an exterminator, etc. And if they did do it themselves, um, how best to do that? Airgun 22, what would you recommend? get my 15-year-old son on that, maybe make a few dollars mowing lawns and killing iguanas around town, hunting for meat. Anyway, thanks for all you do, jerk. Don out. So there is a, apparently a butt-ton of iguanas down in South Florida right now. It's been a problem since the 60s, but in the last few years it's been really bad. Um, South Florida, even for South Florida, has had really mild winters the last few years. And has not had, you know, one of those cold snaps to piss off the citrus farmers since 2009. Uh, and that has failed to keep in check a species that doesn't really belong there, the South American iguana. Uh, these are big lizards. And uh, when I say big, I mean they're big. Five to six foot when fully grown. And they really don't hurt anyone or anything directly there are some plants they really like to eat and if they're your plants in your garden or your backyard they'll eat it and they'll eat a lot of it so other than that though um they do poop oh it's a big animal so it's a lot of poop so they poop in pools they poop in canals they poop wherever they want to they poop on the seawalls so there's that problem that's kind of bird-like in nature the level of the problem though um and they do cause power outages. Occasionally they get into things they shouldn't, especially with aerial cables, and uh, may or may not end up with fried iguana, but you do end up with power out. And uh, though that problem has been largely <coughs> exaggerated, when I actually looked up Florida Power and Light or whatever the hell it's called, um, statistics, iguanas were a tiny portion of the total power outages, but uh, a lot of power outages get blamed on them and or a lot of times the power outage that the iguana causes will get a lot more talk than the one caused by the tree. The number one cause of power outages in Florida is vegetation. Uh, animals like number three, and then iguana is a small portion of uh, animals. Birds actually cause more problems than iguana. So I, they say they destabilize the ecosystem. They're not good for it, but... 
You can't really point to a specific animal and say this animal is threatened because of the iguana. And in fact, I would say that if you could find an animal threatened by the iguana, the people uh, that are killing the iguanas are a bigger threat to that animal than the iguanas are. So I don't think they're quite the environmental catastrophe that the, that the state says they are, um, though I do think there is room for removal uh, in spades at this point. As far as how to, uh, to eliminate them, a good .22 pellet gun is probably the best thing, and a cursory study at least of iguana um, uh, uh, biology and understand exactly where that brain is. Because you can say shoot him in the head, the head of a large iguana is pretty big, and the brain is pretty small. Uh, so either you want to hit the brain or you want to sever uh, the vertebrae on the neck right where it joins the skull at what would be like your C2, C3 uh, vertebrae. So I think if your kid's going to do this, that's great as long as he's old enough to run around with a pellet gun and not get in trouble and not get arrested. There's age limits and things like that, and it's going to be a backyard thing like neighbors, so you got to think about that. But it's probably the number one way. There's nothing wrong. It's going to sound brutal, but a baseball bat to the head is solid and works, um, crushing the skull. And there's actually laws in Florida that even though they can be killed, they have to be killed humanely. That's actually written into Florida Code and Law, And so you need to follow that, or if some nosy neighbor calls, you could end up in trouble, and we should do that anyway. Um, but using poisons, for instance, is illegal. Um, freezing them is illegal. Drowning them is illegal. So you got to make sure you're following the law. There are exterminators that specialize in iguanas that are doing really good business right now with iguana elimination. And so what that makes me think is there's probably... It's okay for the state to tell you to go kill the iguanas in your own backyard, but if you go out and high, as a hired gun, you probably have to have you know a department of making me not sad uh, permit or license or thereafter to be able to do it commercially, and where they will come make you sad. So if your kid's going to do it for some neighbors and he's, they're going to pay him, then you need to keep that somewhat on the down low. I'm all about that kind of sedition. That's wonderful. I'm all about that kind of proactive anarchy. That's fine, but you don't want to put up a sign that says you do it or a website or something like that, and uh, you want to keep it to people you know or that know people you know type of thing. Don't go knocking on doors and asking people you don't know because you'll get some old bitty that thinks it's this horrible that they're killing the pretty lizards in the first place, and she'll call somebody, and most law enforcement is complaint-driven, especially at this level, so be careful with that. Um, what they were shot with with abandon in Panama uh, by native peoples were something that's probably not going to be doable where you at, uh, which was uh, one of the guns people could own pretty easily in Panama at the time anyway, were single-shot shotguns, and uh, the 410 with a full choke. That was kind of like the iguana getter uh, that a lot of these guys ran around the woods with and jungle with, shot iguanas out of trees with. The thing is, from what I've seen in South Florida, so damn many of them, so many people walking around, They're not like wild iguanas. They're like half-wild iguanas. And uh, they uh, they don't have a lot of fear, so at least for now you can get pretty close to them. You can stab them. You can cut their heads off with a machete. You can do just about anything. There's one thing you do need to understand about iguanas. Well, two. One, they can put a pretty nasty bite on you, but they generally don't do it. And in the ways you'd be trying to eliminate them or your son would be trying to eliminate them, they're probably not likely to bite you. If you grab one, it will bite you. Just know that. Um... But the tail is the dangerous thing. 
the back of the tail of an iguana is very much like a piece of sawgrass or uh, salt grass. It is sharp. It is razor sharp. It will cut you, and it, they use it like a whip. When I, I used to catch these things on guard duty on the ammo supply point down in Panama, and what I would always do is use the, the butt of an M16 rifle to pin down their head and a foot to step on their tail just behind their back legs. If they can't move that part of that tail, they can't swing it. And then you could reach down and grab them behind the head with one hand and at the base of the tail with the other hand. And at that point, they pretty much just give up. They feign death, sort of, kind of. They just kind of go limp and hope you'll let them go. If you let them go and they ain't all the way let go, they will whip your ass. Just I'm telling you, it is no joke. And one of the biggest things that they are a danger to in these neighborhoods right now is dogs that think, oh, I'll go play with the pretty lizard. And if that dog is vicious and immediately eliminates that iguana, that's one thing. But if that dog is in any way tentative about his approach, he will end up sliced up, especially in the face, around the muzzle, etc. And I've, I've done some research, and apparently it's a pretty common thing for veterinarians in these areas to have dogs brought in who have had a, a bad way with an iguana. Less common with cats because once something gets over a certain size, a cat's like, yeah, that's not my thing. Um, they don't have any real native uh, predators. There's just really nothing there that eats them. I would think eagles would eat them, and there's a pretty decent recurring population of eagles now in Florida. Um, the, the cougar definitely would eat them, uh, but there's a very limited number of Florida panthers now. So, And in these residential areas, there's nothing. So smaller dogs are going to get their ass whipped. Uh, so you don't have anything to eat them. So elimination is a great idea. Their, their meat is very good. It has, it's, it's one of those things you say, it tastes like chicken. It doesn't really, but if you ain't had it, that's the only thing I can tell you that I know you have that it's kind of sort of like. It is dry meat. It doesn't have a lot of moisture to it, so it has to be cooked very gently. Um, and it has, the only negative would be it has a little tiny bit of like this tinny thing going on in it. But if it's cooked right, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I've eaten quite a bit of iguana. I'm actually quite fond of it. But go for it. Just just understand the nature of the animal. Understand that there's a lot of that head that if it's shot, you've just maimed the animal, and it's going to be really pissed now. And understand it can hurt you or your son. Um, I have a friend that had one as a pet, a really big one, and it was kind of sitting on the back of his couch and sitting on his shoulder, and it just, I think more out of curiosity than anything else, bit him in the neck. And it didn't, you know, it didn't, he didn't go to the, a hospital or anything. I think he needed a stitch or two. I mean, he ended up, that one died eventually of old age, and he had a glass case with a head, and it looked like a little mini T-Rex head. I mean, if you look up Iguana Skull and look up T-Rex Skull, uh, it's it's kind of interesting how they look. And that guy, his name was Dave, and he always said that when, they, when he saw the movie Jurassic Park and the little boy tells the little girl, it's a veggie source, he's like, run! Because <laughs> the veggie will bite your ass. Anyway, uh, give it a shot. Let us know how it works out. But just don't advertise if you're doing it for a uh, hired gun for the neighbors. And uh, I, I'm a little envious. I, I would hunt iguanas a few times a week. I think at least a few times a, a week, you know, here and there, uh, as, a, as a definite way of gathering and foraging meat. Uh, if they were around here, but we're probably better off if not. Thanks for that call. Let's take another one.
Hey, Jack. Jason from PA here with a friendly little reminder for all your listeners to uh, basically take the serial numbers and product numbers of all your high-priced items and dump them on a spreadsheet or whatnot in the cloud, Google Docs, whatever. Um, the reason is I was moving this past week, and my van broke down, had to rent the U-Haul, chaos, had to try to get help moving some stuff, and I got robbed. had about 4000 in camera gear, a bunch of fishing gear, and I don't even know what else I had stolen. And meanwhile, you know, when you follow the police report, you got to provide, you know, what is the product, what is its serial number, and you're sitting there going, well, gee, all my documentation and paperwork is way back there in some bin behind 30 feet worth of furniture and other boxes for moving. And, you know, you just find yourself in a really stressed position when you can't just go online and pull those off. And I know we talk about doing things like that, and a lot of us put it off, put it off. We'll get to it, we'll get to it, but we never do. So just a reminder to make sure you have those important things, not just in paper for when the internets and cells go down, but also that you have them up there for when you can't get to your real life paperwork, perspire, or you name it. I, I was going to do it as a joke and just say, yeah, do that and just go to the next one because it's pretty comprehensive. But I do have two things to add to it. Number one, he says, it's like one of those things we always say we all know we should do it and we're, we'll get to it someday. You may never go through all your shit that should be listed there that's expensive that could disappear and get it all in. But you can start. And the best time to put something in that list is the day you bring it home, the day it shows up, the day you buy it. Because it'll be right there and all the information you need to enter your spreadsheet, like product numbers and serial numbers, I'll be right in front of you. And I'm just going to give you one addition to what Jason said to put in your spreadsheet. Put one more column in there and say picture. I know you probably aren't going to atta directly attach a picture in there. Also put the picture somewhere online, whether it's free or some cloud hosting you have or whatever, and just put a link to the picture in that 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 uh, that cell. And then that way you have the item, the model number, the date of purchase, the cost, the replacement price, and a photograph um, showing that you actually did that and uh, that you actually had it. Because what's more important... In these situations, then, uh, being able to report it to the police, being able to report it to the insurance company that's going to pay you for it. Um, and most of this, especially stolen out of a vehicle, that's, that's covered by most policies when you're covered with full coverage on a vehicle. And um, having that data and being able to show that you have that track record of it um, is a lot, makes it a lot easier to get the insurance company to cover it. So it's as much about regaining the property potentially at some point uh, and getting insurance coverage if it is applicable to have as much information as possible. So even if you don't have time to go through all your stuff and get it all in there, make it a weekend project. Go ahead and make the spreadsheet up. Just put some things in it. And whenever you're walking around and you see something that's expensive, go ahead and get that added in just a little at a time and then always do it with new items when they show up. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on guns. Hey, Jack. Tyler in Ohio. Uh, I recently purchased a Henry Big Boy in 357 Magnum and love shooting the thing. Um, I don't play on this just being a safe queen, and I'd like to go deer hunting with it uh, in Ohio. Uh, and I've heard you mention before that you had taken deers, and I was just wondering uh, what you thought was the best uh, bullet to use for that. Uh, thanks, and talk to you later. Bye. 
Well, it is another sort of kind of it depends, but in general, what I want you to be looking for is rounds that are either 158 grain jacketed soft point or 180 grain jacketed soft point and what shoots best in your gun and almost anything that's good quality 357 Magnum ammo with either of those is going to be just fine on deer. If you get into hand loading or you get into things like double top, double tap ammunition and stuff like that with specialty loads, you can get some pretty good hard cast lead uh, rounds in both of those weights as well. What you don't want is hollow points. And I've, I've, I've debated this with people, but uh, I've shot enough stuff with 357 Magnum and 44 Magnum both to say that I don't think in carbine length barrels you want uh, uh, hollow points because the hollow points were never made for the velocities and uh, more importantly the foot pounds of energy uh, that you end up with when you put those rounds through an 18 inch barrel it is a significant increase in power a 357 magnum out of a rifle it has a higher muzzle velocity and higher energy delivery in the same uh, bullet as does the 357 maximum, which you know went out of vogue because it burns out cylinders and only works well in uh, single shots. Uh, but at the time that it came out, it was the most powerful handgun around in the world. It was more powerful by foot-pounds of energy than the 44 Magnum. Um, I'm just saying, like that that bullet is made to expand at much more moderate velocities. So the potential for insufficient penetration on deer-sized game, especially Ohio whitetails, is there. I have shot deer with 158-grain flat points, and almost every animal shot with it was through and through. In other words, it was an exit hole and an entrance hole. Um, now, I'm not saying it always happens, and it also has to do with hitting bone and stuff like that. And you do have to think a little bit more about shot placement with a 357 than something like, let's say, a 30 6 um, but if you stick to those, you'll be fine. And then from there, you want to find, well, what, what shoots best in my rifle? Now, I had a lot of hope for 140-grain ballistic tips from Hornady from the Leverolution round or whatever they call it like that because it was made for lever-action 357 Magnums. So it's a tougher bullet, and it's got a little more velocity because it's a little bit lighter. Uh, and it's got that ballistic tip, and it's a soft ballistic tip, so in a tubular magazine it doesn't set the whole damn mess off on you and blow you up. Um, but when I shot it out of both one of my lever actions and one of my bolt actions, both in 357 mag, uh, I was not impressed with the velocity. I'm going to tell you, you're going to laugh at me. Um, I've standardized on Federal American Eagle, 158-grain jacketed soft points. They're cheap. Uh, it is like when you go into a sporting goods store, it's the least expensive non-junk ammo they have for 357. Um, it's federal bullet, though. It's, 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 a, it's a good round. Uh, and they're incredibly accurate in all of my guns. So it's so much so that I haven't even bothered to reload 357 in a very long time. Uh, because that about... You know, on, on right now, I'm looking at it on cheaper than dirt. If you buy it online, it's about 30 bucks a box. Uh, and remember, we're talking about pistol rounds, so you don't want 50 rounds for that price. But I generally am able to pick it up in, in stores like Academy Sports and Outdoors, which I know is regional to my area and not everywhere. But I could generally get a box there for about 19 bucks. 
So 19 bucks a box, I mean, is, you know, if you're not talking about something you shoot in large amounts, I can't not recommend it because it's what I use. So some somewhere in that range, or again, you can look uh, to people like Double Tap Ammunition, Buffalo Bore, etc., and the hard cast lead flat points in 158 and 180 grain are also things to look at. But I think you'll find that you'll probably get more accuracy uh, from 158 grain jacketed soft points. I think that's where you're going to find kind of the sweet spot. Um, the 180 grains are a little bit quicker to drop from the muzzle line, and 158 grain zeroed at 25 yards is pretty much a laser beam out to 100 out of a rifle. Drops real quickly after that. So you look at a 100-yard round uh, with no need to hold anywhere except where you want the round to go with all the knockdown power you need. So that's what I'd most recommend. Uh, but no problem putting some 180s through it as well from different manufacturers. And then whatever gives you the best groups, you know, at, let's say 50 to 100 yards, run with that, and you'll be fine. Hey, Jack. This is Max from Cincinnati calling to ask if you think that a fishing kayak is a smart purchase for a beginning fisherman. I've recently wanted to spend more time learning to fish and would like to explore some of the lakes that my city's park system has to offer. The lakes range between 30 and 200 acres, and I know I'd be fishing for panfish and channel catfish, among other species. I'd like to hear your thoughts on if that's a good option or if I should pursue a different choice. Uh, thank you for everything you do. It's much appreciated. Bye. So the answer is maybe. It, it depends. Um, so, so 30 to 300 acres, those are some pretty big lakes. When somebody tells me city parks, I usually see lakes in my head of you know, an acre to five acres or less. Uh, sometimes a half acre, quarter acre lakes in these little city parks around here. We're getting screwed out of our tax money or something. Uh, anyway, um, so one of the things I would advise you is there's probably people that kayak fish in these bodies of water right now. Take a walk someday, especially figure out about the time these guys finish up and where they pull out at. And talk to them about you know what they have, how they fish, what they're rigged up with. And what, you know, what they've learned, like what they wish they would have gotten in the beginning. What do they, what do they still want? Like, what do they feel like I still should add? Uh, you'll learn a lot that way because kayak fishing is a very specialized kind of fishing. And then what I'll add to it is no one ever said, ever, gee, I wish this boat was smaller unless they were towing it on a trailer, backing it up somewhere, or pulling it into a slip where it didn't fit or something like that. And what I mean is when I say that when you're on the water, and you're in a boat, space shrinks really fast. So a lot of times, like, man, you know, boat is plenty big enough for two people until two people are in it in the middle of the water bobbing around. And with a kayak, that's even more the case. So I would say if you're going to use this thing for fishing, that it makes a lot of sense to, to look to a kayak that's made for fishing, that's designed for fishing, it has things like rod holders, and whatnot in it. There's some real advantages. In most states, a kayak does not need to be registered, um, so you don't have any fee to you know pay the government for the privilege of your using your own property like you do with a motorboat. Most states, you don't have to actually register a boat until you put some kind of motor on it, but even a trolling motor qualifies. Not all. Don't write me all angry if yours is different, but most states, that's the case. That's how Texas works. Um, so I can get a 14-foot John boat and row around it, and I don't need a sticker from the state. But if I put a, a, a little 30-foot-pound Minkota trolling motor on it with a deer battery, a deer feeder battery, I need to get permission from the state to use my boat on their waters. Uh, so you don't have generally that cost, and of course there's no fuel, 
and you know you can there's a million different ways to get a kayak to a place without a trailer so they're very portable very affordable even a really decked out kayak is like 600 bucks um, a couple things I would look to make sure that you plan to have lots of water with you uh, there's no bacon like there is bacon on a boat in the sun uh, number two look to some of the options that exist now for things that allow you to like tow a cooler or keep a stringer fish off the you know out of the boat etc because there really is a big time spatial limitation uh, with that definitely you're going to want some way to anchor at minimum what you want is what you call a brush clamp which is basically they sell them for the brush but it's pretty much a wood clamp and a rope uh, that, that allows you to tie off to uh, docks or tree lines or something like that one of the things this would excel for, you mentioned channel cats. If it's legal to jug fish in these lakes, man, running jug lines with, with, a, with a kayak on a small body of water is pretty fun. Uh, so there, there's you know, that to think of, too. If you're going to actually be harvesting these fish for eating, thinking about where they're going to go, I don't have any problem with this. What I would say you may want to do is see if there's anywhere you can rent one for a day and go out and just give it a shot. See if you really like it because, you know, tying up 300 to 600 bucks in something, for some people it's not a big investment. For some it is, but it's, it's significant money. So you want to be sure you're happy with it. But I think the best thing you could do is go talk to some people who are actually using them now about what they did, what they, don't, what they like, what they don't like, what they would buy if they didn't already have money tied up and what they have in and things like that. It's a very specialized thing. Lastly, I would say, if it's in the cards for you, if you have a place to store it, a budget for it, a vehicle that'll tow it, etc., a 14-foot flat-bottom John boat with a little motor on it is going to be a lot more fun to fish out of. The kayak can go places that boat can never go. And if some of the places you want to go that boat can never go, you definitely want to go with the kayak. But if there's boat ramps and it's not a lot of money to be able to put a boat on the water at them and... You know, it's, you're talking about a small, easy to move. Some a car can tow, for God's sakes. You know, uh, I had a, a a friend of mine in high school. He had a 16 foot flat bottom John boat and a hitch ball in the back of a Camaro, and that was his fishing rig. You know, and it was just fine. Uh, so, just make sure that it really works for you. But if it does, go for it. I know people that do it and they love it. I know kayak fishermen that like they don't even want to talk about doing anything else but fishing out of a kayak. And here in Texas, it's not so much the little city ponds and lakes and all. It's a lot of these rivers and streams uh, that are around us that nothing else really works for. They're beautiful for that. A lot of the stuff on the, the, the Trinity and all, the fish really aren't that um, one fork of the Trinity. are really not safe to eat, but you, they still a lot of them in there. And uh, a lot of people really, really love it. But I'm back to... The bigger the boat, the better within the confines of your ability to transport it, store it, afford it. And you will never think to yourself, gee, I wish there was less room here. Just just remember that and uh, figure out what works for you and go for it. I think it's it's probably worth doing. Um, I definitely can't say not to or it's a bad idea in any way. Folks, if you have any thoughts on that or anything we talked about today, leave them in the show notes that are the uh, go by the, the episode today on the blog. Um, and and leave them in the notes for the show, or I'm sorry, the blog comments. And sorry to get discombobulated there. I was trying to think of the show number and talk about something different at the same time. 
go and leave comments in the, the show, which today is episode 2486. I should just pause it and avoided that fumbling around like I had my foot in my mouth. Anyway, we've wrapped up another show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please consider supporting us. I told you you can become a member at the beginning of the show. The other thing you can do uh, is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is for your cooking pleasure, and it is for your cooking pleasure. It is by one of my favorite manufacturers of sauces and marinades for Asian-style cooking, which is one of my favorite types of cooking. The company is called Lee Kum Kee, and the Kum is K-U-M, Lee Kum Kee, K-E-E. And this is black pepper sauce. I love this stuff. Every time I cook for somebody with it, they're like, oh, my God, it's so good. And it's so simple, you almost feel like I should be doing more. It's like I shouldn't be able to just get everything I need in a jar, but you pretty much can. I do a little bit more with it. I'm going to give you some, some stuff today, some secrets from Jack's Kitchen. First of all, this, this black pepper sauce is made with a variety of things, but obviously black pepper, soy sauce, oyster sauce, some uh, tomatoes, etc. It just has a really great flavor to it. And the way it says to use it on the jar is cook your chicken or your beef or whatever meat you're going to put it on. It's primarily for meats. And then in a separate container, mix, let's say, a tablespoon of this and a tablespoon of water. Mix it 50-50 with water to thin it out because it's kind of concentrated. And then dump it in at the end of the cook and stir it around and cook it down just a little bit and get off the heat. So that we don't cook the sugars in it out too much and get charring and whatever. We don't cook the flavor out of it. It's just really a finishing sauce the way they've designed it to be. And if you do that, you'll like it. But what I'm going to tell you to do is don't mix it with water. Mix it with mirin. Mirin is sweet sake, sweet cooking sake. Most sake is crap. It is basically cheap sake mixed with corn sugar. Um, I have a link in the show notes or the, the write-up today on this for a brand of mirin uh, that I really recommend. It is the only really good mirin you can get without spending stupid money uh, in the United States regularly. It's made by a company called Eden. Uh, so the sweet mirin is basically, real mirin is just a sweet wine. It's not sweetened after it's made. So you use mirin. You can even use the cheap stuff. It's okay. And, and mix it half and half with the mirin, and it's a much better result if you do just that. But you know me. I don't stop there. So what I've come up with using this is take a tablespoon of this, and this is about a pound, pound and a half of meat. Increase the volume if you do more meat than that. And slice your meat against the grain so you open up the fibers of the meat so the marinade can get in there. And mix up about a tablespoon of mirin and a tablespoon of this black pepper sauce up to two tablespoons of each, and mix it up and dump the meat into a Ziploc bag and dump this on it and marinate it with it. And then throw that in the refrigerator. All day long is best. I, when I'm going to cook stir-fry at night, I usually get up in the morning, have my morning cup of coffee, do my morning chores, cut my meat up, marinate it, and cook that night. So it's in there all day. Definitely do it the day before if you want to. Do a hot wok, fry on that, and then do your take it, cook it like 80%, take it out, throw your vegetables in. Do your vegetables so they're almost done. Throw the meat back in. And whatever you put the meat on, there'll be a bunch of juice. that will come out of that meat. Make sure the juice goes back in as well. Finish it up. And then do what they say but use the mirin. Half mirin, half uh, black pepper sauce for your finishing sauce. Kill the heat. Throw it over that and finish it off. It's The flavor is unbelievable for how simple that is. Think about it. The whole marinade and sauce is two ingredients. 
this sauce and some mirin. And you can do it with water if you want to. I gave a, a, a way to use kind of the same thing with some additions on the grill. I won't do on air for, uh, for keeping the show shorter. Um, but it involves adding some really sweet stuff and brushing the skewers at the end. And it's, it's very, very good. But if you give this sh stuff a shot, I think you'll like it. Um, again, it's, it's, it's inexpensive. I mean, you can get an eight ounce jar of it for $9.99. You're using a couple tablespoons to a meal. Uh, but I prefer I buy a three-pack of 12-ounce uh, jar jars, and that is uh, something like 26 bucks or something like that. So it's definitely uh, more affordable because you're getting bigger jars and more of them. Uh, but Lee Cum Key is just a lot of this stuff. Without getting really specialized or taking a trip to China or Hong Kong, it, it's about as good as you can do. They really do a good job. I'm not going to say everything's 100% natural or anything like that, but it's it's just incredible quality and great flavor. Uh, just a note, you might be able to find this at your local market for less money. Go check. Anytime you're getting things shipped from Amazon that are in jars or bottles and heavy, uh, even if they say the shipping's free, obviously you got to pay the bills, so the money's built in there somewhere. Uh, but I never can find the black pepper sauce in my local markets. If I go to an Asian market, they usually have it. Uh, but here's the cool thing today. I have in the write-up today kind of a sneak peek of things that are coming. I have my go-to for the for a walk, even though I haven't reviewed it yet. I have found my walk of choice. Uh, the mirin that I mentioned is listed in there. This is all in the PS. An oyster sauce, a cooking sake that's not a mirin. It's a pure cooking sake, different brand, really, really good. Hong Kong egg noodles. Sounds simple. It's, that's, you know, that's like... That's like ramen, isn't it? No, I don't eat many noodles. I want it the best. The noodles I have for you are made by a company called Camfen, and you have to go to Hong Kong and get better noodles, in my opinion, and they're not expensive. Uh, that's listed, a hoisin sauce. And then I mentioned that grill thing, and there's another little thing I left out of the stir-fry, and it's a black bean and garlic paste, and that's in there as well. So you can find that all in the write-up today which you can find at tspaz.com. Just click on the most recent reviews or go to the, the main website and just start scrolling and you'll see it. And again, the uh, just don't get shocked at the price of the, the, the primary one I'm linked to because it's three 12-ounce jars. It's not one. All right. With that, we've wrapped up another uh, show, and I want to do our song of the day today. Song of the day today is uh, uh, by a guy named Curtis Malden. Uh, and this is cover week where... The famous person to do the song uh, is the second person, the person who did the cover. The cover was more popular than the original. Yesterday, I played a song for you that, I mean, some of you commented on the blog, oh my God, that was as bad as you said it was and worse. Um, we have no doubt why the original was not successful. It just blew. And, of course, that was Blinded by the Light. The original done by Bruce Springsteen. It was just, it sounded like Dylan Stone. Bob Dylan all stoned out of his mind and drunk at the same time. Uh, Man for Man's version of it, of course, went to, I think, number two on the charts and was, or maybe one even, and it was really a good, you know, 70s rock song. Um, this song, I feel the other way about, though, a lot of people disagree with me. Uh, the song is called Ray of Light, and, uh, And it was originally called Sifrum or Safrum or something. I can't even think of how um, it, to pronounce this word. It almost sounds like some kind of Babylonian god or something. And you're talking about the sun coming up and stuff, so maybe it would be. But I can find no reference to where that comes. But it, it doesn't even appear in the song's lyrics. Zephyr 
is the first lyric in the song. It's the only thing even close to that in the whole song. Um, th some of you know exactly who is famous for this song, and some of you don't. And some of you are going to groan real hard when I tell you who is. And you're going to groan even harder when I play a little bit of the song from, from, from her. But it's Madonna. Madonna released this song in 98. And when Madonna released it, it was um, an immediate hit. It was a real techno hit. Uh, it's one of the biggest hits she's ever had. The video alone on it has like 10 million views. Um, it, it's one of the all-time best-selling albums. Ray of Light was the whole album of all time. I don't like it. I don't like that kind of music, though. But I can listen to that music and say I can see why it's successful. I mean, it is like techno dance music that would be in a nightclub that everybody would be real happy about except me, but I would never be in that club in the first place, so you can be happy listening to it. So this was one of those songs, when I saw it, I didn't even recognize it. I didn't even recognize it for what it was, and when I listened to the Madonna version, I didn't even recognize it at first, and then it got up toward the chorus, and I was like, Oh, that song. Probably everybody on Earth's heard this song. Just so you have something to compare the original to, let me play you like a line or two introing and then a bit of the chorus from the Madonna version right now. So, again, I, I understand why that song is popular. I'm not crapping on it or anything. I just, it's not me. Um, the original, though, is from 1971, and again, it was called Seferin. I guess that's how you say it. Again, the word that's the title tr of the song doesn't even appear in the song at all. Zephyr is as close as it gets. Uh, and it sounds like a song from the 70s. It sounds like something that, you know, would be played maybe in the background of a montage or something about uh, late 60s, early 70s protests or something. At least parts of it do. And I actually enjoy this one a lot more than the one that made it big. You may differ, but here you go. If you've ever wondered where that techno wizardry song from Madonna came from, it came from this. Uh, man, you talk about politics making strange bedfellows. Music really sometimes makes some strange bedfellows. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Shall lead them through the testing years. 